So right. So I think that, you know this is the this is the ambivalence. You know, a kind of recovery does happen, but at the same time, you want it to to challenge and and interrogate and be in meaningful dialogue with a, you know a more dominant narrative. Welcome back for episode four of the Parthian podcast. Today's host, Dylan Hugh, is another writer who we met through the Just So You Know essay anthology, and we're thrilled to have him back to take a dive into the many thoughts and considerations which have gone into the making of Queer Square Mile, a new anthology of queer short stories from Wales. Joined by the editors of the project, Dylan brings us a deeply thought-provoking conversation about queer literary history, identity and recovery in Wales, leaving us with plenty of food for thought. Hello, Bob, Kreuzer. Welcome to this episode of the Pathian Podcast. Today, we're discussing a very, very exciting anthology. It's called Queer Square Mile, Queer Short Stories from Wales. And I'm really honoured to have been asked to be here today to hear from two of the book's editors about what readers can expect from Queer Square Mile, about how the project all came together, and more broadly about how we tell queer history in Wales and beyond, and how considering the short story form might offer some interesting ways of doing that. I'm Dalan Hale. I'm a writer and art worker from Aberystwyth, now living in Cardiff, and also one of the 25-ish authors who have short stories collected in Queer Square Mile. The book is the first of its kind in Wales and includes short stories spanning from 1837 to 2018. They range from rediscovered stories by some of our most well-known writers to new translations of Welsh language stories, compelling writing around LGBTQIA plus life, culture, desire, community, history, so if the two of you could briefly introduce yourselves, maybe Kirsty first and then Hugh. Thanks for, for that brilliant description of the book. My my name is, is Kirsty Boherter and I'm um, Professor of English at uh, Swansea University and um, uh, I suppose the thing I need to say is that I've been I've been working on queer literature now for about 10 years, and this, this anthology has been a long time in the making. I'm Hugh Osborne. I'm an associate professor in the Department of English at the Royal Military College of Canada. Um, I've been working in this area for a number of years, uh, particularly first on uh, the works of Rhys Davis, and then edited the Queer Wales critical uh, edition of essays. And this uh, loved working on this book. It's uh, a lot of fun to uh, bring all this together. Lovely. And I should say that the book's third editor is the author Mihangel Morgan, um, who unfortunately can't be a part of this conversation, but is here in spirit. Uh, so to start this conversation, I'd love to hear you both talk a bit about what your initial kind of personal ambitions were for Queer Square Mile, um, which I'm sure we'll get deeper into throughout the conversation cast your minds back to when the book was first conceived or you first came on board, why did an anthology of 
queer and queer-ish short stories from Wales feel like a worthwhile project? And what, from your own practice and perspective, did you want to bring to it? Um, who? Do you want to go first on that? Uh, sure. Um, I know I find it, it, it's a bit of a fraught question <laughs> from my perspective, actually. But Kirsty um, originally brought me on. And uh, and I was you know so happy to be uh, to be asked because there's uh, there's so much great material out there that you know some of it's well known uh, but much of it is is less well known and to bring it all together in in one place so that you know, future you know scholars of of this have something of this area have something more substantial to work on and to start envisioning new new questions and and new research um, but also uh, I think. Because it's it has such great you know potential for the general reader too, just because it's um, you know these are stories and, and an element of this na- of the nation that just have been told but aren't pulled together in one place. But I say it's fraught because you know you it's always um, a bit of a vexed question about how you, you know, what what you're what you're building and what you're putting together when you do this. Um, and so what are the what are the implications of the forms you ultimately choose, for example, the form and format of this? Um, what is it? Is, is this, for example, a work of uh, queer recovery uh, and recovering those lost writers that have been hidden, lost, forgotten? And, you know, that that's a great endeavor, but at the same time raises questions about whether or not we can adequately recover or or how they're recovered when they're brought into this larger context of, of an anthology. And and you know and anthology is such a problematic genre in so many ways. So hoping to I hope that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's a really useful place to start because actually I mean I said I've been working on queer literature for 10 years, so that's an, a, that's wrong. I think I started this in about 2008 when I was working on Amy Dillwyn and started to sort of ask bigger questions about, okay, so what are, what other writing can I bring in here? But actually looking back, I've been writing about Welsh representations of Welsh lesbians at least and from the beginning of, of publishing in about 2000. But I must say that I didn't really start working with queer theory until – I don't know, 2010, 2011, when I was really trying to understand how to frame this. And one of the things that Hugh has been amazing at um, on this project is is to to keep bringing these questions back. So I, I would admit that I kind of initially saw this as, as, you know, it's making it visible, making it available, making sure it's all there in print. You know, when, when John Sam Jones published his short stories in 2000 and he entitled them Welsh Boys 2 that felt like something that needed to be said in 2000 you know that it was possible to be Welsh to be Welsh speaking and to be gay and and that so that sort of sense of the urgency or the need for a recovery to show that there has been a tradition if you can call it that of queer Welsh writing in Wales diverse and difficult to handle that that has been a part of of the project but equally that Hugh's caution and, uh, and and taking a much queerer approach in sort of writing the introduction, the, the the form in which the stories are presented, so it's not sort of a straight chronology telling term there, isn't it? Um, all of that has been, you know, part of the process of of, of creating the anthology in, in its current form. And we had some really interesting conversations about what to include and how to present it. I think... It's worth saying that, that you know that the, the 
anthology as well is 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 I think better for having taken quite a long time. And it's been we've been really um, lucky to have a, a very kind of generous set of people um, around us. So I can't remember when Hugh came on board, but originally we thought we'd do an anthology of. Uh, well, extracts from novels, poetry, stories, whatever, it would all be there because we probably thought that we wouldn't have enough material. And and that is a really um, labour-intensive form of anthology to extract things and to, uh, yeah, to frame them. Uh, so we, that really never got beyond a list. But, I mean, I, I know that in, in 2014, Katie Grammuth translated Nadolig for us, Kate Roberts' short story. So I know we were thinking about, I, at least I was thinking about it in 2014. But then we, when we decided we we're going to go with short stories and Hugh um, had the sort of inspired idea of bringing Mahanga and Morgan on board. And so we had suddenly access to a much richer range of Welsh language writers, you know, beyond Kate Roberts, who we'd already identified. But then there were people like Michelle Deininger, um, who was talking about the stories of Catherine Freeman, who I'd never heard of, and she contributed, sort of recommended several of those. And Norena Shopland uh, was sending me, uh, not you know, short stories that she was finding in Welsh newspapers. So there, some of those are in there. Um, Tony Brown was helping on Glyn Jones. So it, it was suddenly sort of came together with the input of other people. And I don't think I expected to find as many short stories as we did. But um, And we've also found unpublished work and work that is published here for the first time. So when I, I pitched this to, to Richard Parthian in a, in a pub in Carmarthen, I had about 40 short stories. And I think he was quite taken aback. And I think now we've got, what is it, about 43, 44? And it's not by any means a sort of a comprehensive, you know, we could have chosen a lot more stories. So it's it's not trying to be comprehensive. Um, yeah, I've sort of gone off the topic, but that's 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 how, that's kind of the story of its development. Yeah, and, and new stories were cropping up all the time. I'd love to see that initial list of what the book could have been if it had included different kinds of writing, different, different genres. Um, I'd like to go back to that idea of recovery and to what extent or how consciously do you see that act of recovery as being kind of an intervention, I guess, in this idea of tradition or a, a canon, the canon of Welsh literature? Uh, not to make it, yeah, as you said earlier here, it's not like the book doesn't read as a purely academic exercise at all. It's very pleasurable and accessible to just for the general reader but it does also inevitably have this kind of feel of importance to it of intervention um and i i think you might have suggested this just now but i think canons are often associated with a kind of yeah quite heteropatriarchal possibly mode of like engaging with art and writing so yeah just in general how conscious have you been in creating this book of this book's relationship to the idea of the Welsh canon. Yeah. Um, yeah, thanks. It's, it's a really good question. And, you know, because we resisted the idea of you know, recovery uh, from the beginning. And yet, you know, as the book is finished, as it appears, as it's, as these stories are there, it, it kind of is whether you like it or not. Right. And, you know, because it's, it's, it's such a, I think, in, uh, such a powerful and profound collection of, of stories. So, uh, but at the same time, you know, you, you try to mitigate that and you're always working, I think, between the, the effort to create something coherent and useful and the effort to not replicate, you know, potentially oppressive forms of, of thinking, 
you know, I, I'm very much of the, the, the Lee Edelman school that the, the queer doesn't define an identity. It only troubles one. And so, you know, but, you know, a book is a, is a strange, solid thing. So, um, and I think there's a lot, you know, quite a bit of back and forth on, on how we approach this book in terms of, you know, its organization. And uh, that question of, of chronology, of course, comes in right from the beginning. Is that's the simplest way to just lay it all out there and get it get it done. Um, and you know, in, in my PhD years, I remember I once almost switched away from from Reese Davis to doing work on on the Canadian anthology, uh, literary anthology, and and I was interested in the kind of national narratives that get collated and collected in different periods of time by different period people with different agendas and. Um, and you know, you, you start thinking about what kind of, of links are forged between stories in, in ways that you are perhaps don't have control over. Uh, in some ways you do have control over them as you make that leap across one text to the next. Um, what kind of narrative is, is inevitably created or constructed? And particularly in, in the, the narrative of the, of the literature of the nation, uh, because, uh, the nation is itself such a narrative construct. Uh, and so, you know, and so we kind of resisted that notion of, of chronology, uh, and canon and creating that alternative canon an, in a chronology that could exist alongside the, the current narrative of Welshness, of national Welshness, of the, of the national narrative of Wales, mm-hmm. I should say. Uh, and, and because that, that creates, and, and other critics have, have written about this, that it creates a sense of, of the queer Welsh canon that exists alongside the master narrative of Welsh history and that you have your collection of, of handy queer characters that you can plop into that story. And in some ways it, it tells the queer narrative by reinforcing the dominant national narrative, a hetero national narrative. Um, and, and it also runs the risks of, I think even more dangerous of building a, a false narrative um, one that has more to do with our own desire to see a narrative of progress, a, a narrative of, of triumph as we move from obscurity into expression and into liberated voices. And, and that we're, that th- there is this kind of inevitably, inevitable march of progress that then, uh, obscures the, the ongoing difficulties and traumas and troubles of queer identities within the context of nation and community and home that are, are ongoing. And so you do a kind of uh, injustice to queer experience by giving it a, a coherence uh, that, that really comes from uh, a national experience that pre-exists and is outside of that. So you don't want to, you know, replicate that. And yet at the same time, you know, some kind of structure is needed if you're going to actually have a book. I have a, a quotation I love from the fantasy science fiction writer, China Mieville. Uh, he says, uh, I'm in this business for the monsters, but publishers want them bound in books. Um, and so, you know, it's great to have, you know, your queer monstrosity, but, you know, we can't just throw a monster out there and expect people to read it. So, so, right. So I think that, you know, this is the, this is the ambivalence, you know, a kind of recovery does happen, but at the same time, you want it to, to challenge and, and interrogate and be in meaningful dialogue with a, you know, a more dominant narrative. I think one one thing to note is that a lot of these stories are canonical and they're by canonical writers. And it's in, in one sense, bringing them together makes them 
speak to, well they they're more visible as a mass but also i really like the move away from chronology for the for for a less political sense and that, that these stories speak to each other differently and i didn't really want to start with 1837 and to say that there is some kind of continuity all the way through um you know, obviously, what Hugh said is 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 really important. And there was one other example of a way in which the, the kind of the, the questions that we had to negotiate around the anthology, and um, that was around how far we went into the biographies of writers. You know, how far that you 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 start foisting an identity upon writers. Um, now we we chose these stories for for their content. We were with no interest in the identity of the writers in terms of their sexuality, in terms of their nationality, possibly. I mean, we were choosing writers from Wales or with a close association with Wales, but that's as far as the identity went. Um, but when I, when we were writing the introduction, we had this kind of discussion around how far we would talk about the lives of writers, dead writers, the living writers can can declare their own identity as and when they want. Um, and Hugh was. And hope I represent this properly now, but was was arguing that we shouldn't that we didn't need to discuss this basically because it was it, it ran the risk of yeah constructing retrospectively this pantheon of queer writers that we could we could sort of draw on and go look haven't they they've all they've been here all the time and yet I felt to not mention this was was problematic in a Welsh context because. We're in a position in Wales where people's queer lives have been erased, either, you know, literally had their, you know, their papers been burned or, or simply the way that they're represented in criticism and biography, that their, their, their gay lives or, or whatever have been, um, deliberately kind of omitted. And where you have that is almost that the, the sort of, um, queer theory's resistance to categorization and, and taxonomy, which is, which I, you know, I, I support becomes almost like putting, you know, like keeping the closet shut when you have a context where people haven't actually had their lives accurately represented. So in the end, we went with a an attempt to indicate where people had lives which didn't really conform to heteronormative or gender normative, well, to, to, to the norms of their period and without you know, labeling anybody unless, unless somebody had, had already kind of owned an identity. But I, yeah, it was, it was this, it was a really interesting conversation around the fact that actually approaching this anthology in a Welsh context was required different strategies, perhaps to an anthology for, from, uh, uh, you know, another country, another culture. It is very striking just how many of the most, as you, as you mentioned, I think both of you, the most, you know, canonized, well-known modern Welsh authors are represented in the book and did write around queer themes, gay, gay lesbian themes. Um, but what's equally striking from just, you know, scanning the contents is how many stories authors are marked anonymous. Um, but of course, this shouldn't be surprising because, you know, the book is looking at writing in Wales over almost the last two centuries. And as, as you both mentioned, queer histories are often, you know, invisibilized or coded or obviously suppressed in different ways by different forces. Um, but I'd be really interested to hear any reflections on how you as editors dealt with that kind of hiddenness um, that was, I'd imagine, sometimes inherent in much of what you were looking at. You know, what kind of challenges did that throw up for you in, in putting this book together? 
Yeah, and I, it's it's also, if I understand you correctly, I think it's also you know it becomes a, a question of of inclusion or exclusion as well. Um, you know, the the degree of hiddenness uh, or the or the obliquely told story uh, can sometimes raise questions about the degree to which you know it is queer because you know so many of these stories were were of course written in a context in which it was it was illegal to be gay and therefore it's the love that dare not say its name and. So, you know, many of these stories are, are very coded and, and Kirstie has written about this in, in terms of, um, you know, the, the apparition of the ghostly lesbian and, uh, the kind of coded ways in which, uh, you know, alternative desires can be expressed through things like music, um, and, and color and, and so on. And so you're, you're, you are always kind of reading the codes and trying to understand, um, the way in which these stories speak without speaking. And I think Blind Date was a good one. We had a, a bit of discussion around that as well. And because, you know, it, it wasn't originally or overtly, you know, a, a queer story, but, you know, you start looking at the way in which it, it links, you know, the body and sexuality and class. And, the, and so the, the, the class narrative starts to become equated with the, the family and sensual and sexual and romantic narrative um, in ways that they, you know, they start, you know, almost co- coding sexuality as, as class alignment and expectations in, in one's life. And so, you know, that, that queerness kind of emerges there. And, and so I think that that coding uh, is, is an important reading strategy, but it also, I think, influences the ways in which, you know, we, we end up uh, organizing the stories as well. You know, stories that, um, you know, are in some ways about repression and the inability to speak and say, um, and therefore the impossibility or the, the failure of, the, of queer desire. Um, but it's a failure that, that can nevertheless be a productive one. And I think, again, a lot of the stories about, about children fall into this category as well. And water music is such a beautiful, evocative, um, lyrical story. And it's, it's so much in you know, fluidity of the desires in that story, um, the sensuousness and the and the sort of and obliquity as well, I think, of of the childhood experience, really starts to speak a particular kind of queerness or a way into queerness, uh, and so that's I think part of of you know the the importance of that codedness that is in so many of the stories. Staying with that topic of you know codedness and secrecy in a way, the multilingual nature of Welsh literature um, is also uh, kind of represented in the book in really interesting ways. Even even though the story is all up here in English and it is an English language book, many authors who's, who are most well known for their Welsh language work uh, are included with um, lots of their stories newly translated for the book. Kirsty, could you talk a bit about the role of language um, and whether the process of working on the book challenged or informed any of your ideas about where this idea of language or translation and, and code might intersect with, with queerness and also, I guess, with, with Welshness. I think, despite having compiled these stories and work, and I know some of them very, very well, and others less so, I still think that there's a, a another process to be undertaken from my point of view of actually going back and analysing these. And so I, at the moment, I, I'm not sure I have the you know, a, a clear answer about language across these stories. Um, but I, I did, well, the, the whole process of translation has been fascinating because 
although I, my Welsh isn't brilliant, where I've read the English, I've gone back to the Welsh and, and tried to compare, you know, particularly in the context of, of the code, you know, you know, the word odd, for example, the word queer, all of these words are sort of, um, you become uh, more attuned to them when you're reading in English. So what is, what is, what was the equivalent in Welsh? And for, for example, in the, uh, in Kate Roberts's Nadolic, the word strange in English, uh, Katie's word, uh, is repeated. And I, I'm thinking, okay, strange, queer, odd, all of this. So what is it in Welsh? And, and in, in Welsh, it's, it's Rabeth. I mean, Kate Roberts uses the same word repeatedly. She's not, you know, Katie has, has consistently translated that. Um, it could have been translated, I suppose, in a more overt way as queer. But, but it's that repetition, even rather than the word that, that begins to be feel odd. And there is something about the short story and its its condensation of experience, you know, either a fragment or a, a scene or somehow cramming a whole life or generations into a short space. And that intensity that I think lends itself, in a sense, to to, to that coding. And it, it really mattered to me to have Welsh language stories in this anthology. In an ideal world, they'd be dual text so that you could compare the English version and the Welsh version, the Welsh original, because that would, in a sense, give you that ability to explore language directly and, and to look at the ways in which the Welsh and the English work slightly differently. Um, I think that, I mean, we've talked about this in the past, Dolan, in terms of the, the word queer and, and how that is, translates into Welsh. Um, so although these are these are implicit issues, I suppose, in, in the anthology as we have, have presented it, the question of how queerness functions in different languages was, was part of that process of, of what, what was going on behind the scenes, some of the discussions going on behind the scenes. And I think, you know, in a, in a as I said, in an ideal world, they, they would be dual texts. So that we could we could we could retain the Welsh presence in its Welsh in, in the Welsh language in an anthology like this or in volume two. Could we go back a bit and talk more about uh, the, the the themes themselves, the way the stories are organised into groups? Um, so the first group is called Love, Loss and the Art of Failure. The second is Disorderly Women. The third is Transformations. And in the introduction, um, which I think was written collaboratively between the three of you, within each theme, the stories are not presented in any chronological order, but with a view to highlighting dialogue across times and places and in the hopes that new and spontaneous connections can be made. And I think for the reader... Um, I think the introduction does such a good job of both contextualizing the whole book and its, you know, relationship to all these, all these things we've talked about, queer history, Welsh history, the history of the short story. But you also describe in this lovely comparative way several individual stories in the collection in ways that just make some of them sound like the most exciting thing you've ever come across, um, at least for me as a youngish Welsh queer reader. And so... What that does is it gives every story in the collection, in a way, these multiple layers of context, which for me makes the makes the experience of, kind of navigating the book uh, a kind of adventure, like a, a wonderful like queer adventure, 
in itself. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just curious, like, is that sense of discovery and adventure for the you know general kind of non-academic reader something that was important for you in, in how you organized these you know, thematic groupings? Yeah, um, you know, I just switched perspective as the the editor slash reader, um, and I think that that sense of adventure was very much in the, in the process of of putting it together. And a number of these stories um, I had never read before, and so I was discovering them. Um, some of them, most of them, I would say, as as we were moving through, and and yeah, I, I find your reaction to the introduction and, and so I'm really really reassuring and, and exciting because I, I think um, it is that sense of, you know, looking at almost each of these stories individually and those possibilities and those connections is, is um, it's just wonderful to hear. Cause I think that's, that's a great way to approach it. And, you know, and looking for those, those um, different relationships, the different potentials beyond what maybe we have put together here, I think is a really important invitation to the reader um, so that, you know, the editorial hand is, is helpful, but not prescriptive. And, uh, and so, you know, when we came up with these, these different categories, we kind of thought in terms of more, um, you know, broad queer critical questions that, that could form um, sort of thematic groups and at the same time, you know, we felt that all of these thematic groups were porous and, and stories could jump across. And so sometimes we'd, you know, try to position a story at the end of one section that kind of ties into the themes and questions of the other section. And, you know, the, the section on transformations is closely related to the sections in, in hauntings and queer fancies in the way that myth and legend and gothic is so interested in, in the transforming and the transformational and, and bodies that can shift and change. Um, so we were looking for those kinds of, of uh, kind of living relationships between them and hopefully that, you know, other exciting connections would, would emerge from them. So I, I would say, yeah, that was very much a, a conscious uh, effort on our part. And it took quite a while, I think, to, to nail down those titles and, and groupings. And it, feel, it feels like they could move at any time, right? It's like, it felt like we were just holding it, holding it in place. Like Robert Frost, poetry is a momentary stay against confusion. Um, maybe that's our table of contents as well. I'd like to go back to something new we talked about uh, quite a bit at the beginning of this conversation, which was time and, and chronology um, and this idea of, of national time. And one of the subheadings in the introduction, again, is, is queering chronologies. And you write about working against what you refer to as heterosexual and patriarchal conceptions of time. And you mentioned here Ladlan Hadai as a kind of example of that, which I, which I really enjoyed. Um, and uh, the need to approach quoting again and covering of the queer past uh, that's resolutely outside of heteronormative ordering of national time. Uh, and reading that way of articulating what, what project like this might do felt incredibly powerful to me. And, you know, I think, here you touched on this earlier, but I think sort of simplistic presumptions about kind of older queer writing being about the closet and oppression, while contemporary queer writing is about, you know, freedom or liberation or whatever, which I, I do think is a, like a kind of binary assumption that people do still definitely have in general in queer writing as well. Um, it's something that this structure really complicates. So I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit from your perspective on 
this book's relationship to um, or presentation of progress, linear progress, um, and maybe a bit more about what was meant by kind of national time in the way that you address it in the introduction. Yeah, I mean, just uh, the, you know, I, 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 I may be repeating myself, but, um, you know, there are these competing notions of queer nation. Um, you know, there, there's no, we're not talking about the queer nation in that um, 1990s sense of queer nation of this political statement of solidarity across national identities because if you do that you're you're you know alighting the very important cultural differences and the experiences of queerness so you have to look at queerness in the intersection of national and sexual uh identities um and yet at the same time the you know the nation of wales and as we think of the nation of wales is you know as or as the nation of wales has been uh constructed is is through history and narrative and um, and development over time, and that history and narrative further is understood in terms of lineage and descent and fundamentally uh, the heterosexual and patriarchal order and the central idea of the family, and so it's difficult to to separate those those elements from one another, and so if you're trying to belong to the national experience as a queer person. You are have to do so in in a way that is outside of the traditional narratives of belonging and success that that underpin the idea of the nation. So um, the if and if we're focusing on the idea of progress, you know, progress within the national narrative can sometimes be uh, a co-opting of the queer experience into uh, an ideal or liberalizing vision of the nation itself. So I think, for example, uh, and this is what some people have uh, referred to as uh, homonormativity, that the queer has been norm- normalized within uh, the national narrative. And so uh, some criticize the idea of gay marriage as, as a progressive moment of inclusion, um, and others will say that's homonormative that actually takes away the queer potential of, of our lives and our stories because we're now subserving to the nation. Um, an example I sometimes think of is the um, National Queer Pride in, in Canada a few years back. And it was significant in part because it was the first uh, gay pride uh, in which the Prime Minister of Canada, in this case Justin Trudeau, stood up within a prominent presence in that parade. And it was a great moment of national acceptance of, of the queer. Yet at the same time, it, it ran the risk of, of telling a story of progress uh, that appealed to those who have already found a kind of political acceptance. And because this was also the, the gay pride parade that was disrupted by uh, queer Black Lives Matter protests. And it, it exposed a whole bunch of racial uh, omissions and and straight up racism that was underpinning the the, the queer nationalization of queer pride. So um, that's the the risk of, of some of these ideas of progress. So to you know create this narrative, and so to create this, as I said before, to create that narrative of progress in, in the textual object of the anthology is dangerous in, in a similar way. And we're not, we don't know. That's the wonderful thing. That's the you know, wonderful in the sense of you know intriguing thing about anthologies. Um, there are stories we haven't found. Right? There are gaps and blacknesses in in this narrative. Uh, but but when you put it all together, it has the the appearance of completion. Mm-hmm. Kirsty, it'd be really good to hear you 
uh, delve a bit deeper into the the square mile in the queer square mile and the fact that this book has a national framework as well as you know this, these different frameworks that it's that it's um, using. It's such a common it's such a common phrase. And it's so it's so at the heart of Welsh of, of, of well a certain type of Welsh identity at least that it it felt I mean Richard Davis from Parthian just sort of came up with it like that and we were sitting on a bench and said have you got a title or maybe he had thought about it but anyway I haven't got a title and he said what about Queer Square Mile and initially I thought oh God that's a bit <laughs> and and it's exactly that almost that response of oh can we say that that made it feel like a more important you know yeah sort of to justify it even more um because it's yeah one's broad one's rootedness in place and uh, yeah i think it is almost that that tension between a mr square and queer that 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 works so well i hope it works and i mean it is that it is that sense of of trying to diversify or maybe that's a, a crude term, but diversify a sense of Welshness that, that is in there to say that, you know, there is something at the sort of that authentic heart of, of, of our proper Wales, which is also queer, that I like about that title. And, and the cover, the book cover is showing Rebecca Rioters. That, but, you know, so there is a, never really sure what those figures are. Are they men dressed as women? Are they trans figures? Are they, I mean, they are sort of really queer and performative. And so there is that sort of effort to engage with yeah, types of Welshness, as well as type, types of queerness. I'm using the word type, which is all wrong, but they are, are trying to, trying to expand, um, um, all of these shorthand or, or cultural, social cultural stereotypes that we carry with us even if we're or I carry with me even if I'm trying to move beyond them yeah and I think what's effective about the, the idea of a queer square mile is that everyone's square mile is different right and everyone has completely personal associations with that too um it's not like there's one kind of stereotype of what a square mile is it's just this kind of all-encompassing but really complex it's emotive and it's imaginative and it's, it involves the past and the present. I'm liking the title more and more every day. We're almost out of time, so before we finish, I'm going to put uh, the two of you on the spot and ask both of you, Kirsty and Hill, to name one story that's included in the collection that you're maybe particularly attached to or that you're um, especially excited to bring to a wider readership. Um, and why Christie's gonna go first? Um, I know I can never choose one. <laughs> I'm particularly attached to Nardolic by Kate Roberts, and I think that's because I have I have read it, reread it many, many times, and I'm really excited the fact that it's the first English translation, so it's bringing it uh, a, a well-known story in Welsh to to a wider audience, uh, to an English-speaking audience. But the one I, I suppose I'm most surprised by and kind of quite pleased by as well is is Ken Atheridge's short story which is this frankly bizarre science fiction story which I found in the archives on this sort of scrap of well not scrap but you know sort of manuscript it's a really messy bundle of of papers and um, I wasn't even sure if it was complete you know the typeface was was bleeding through and and so there's just something unexpected about that um and I think that it yeah it's it just stands it it stands out as something quite unusual um, of its time, but so 
and, and perhaps that represents a, a, what a lot of the anthology is trying to do is, is present something a bit a bit different. Well, the, this is interesting because uh, I had the same story. <laughs> um, like Kirsty, I've got a lot of um, other stories that that speak to me, and uh, you know, I you know, I, I always love water music. Um, but you know, if I were to pick stories that that I think are you know new and um, and you know against my comments before recovered stories, <laughs> this is a really neat one because because of the way in which it was found. Um, and really, I think my favorite section is that whole section, uh, hauntings and queer fancies. Um, it speaks to me in a number of ways. Um, but in there is the Etheridge story. Nobody dies, nobody lives. Um, and yeah, it is, it is weird. It is science fiction. Um, but it's, it's a really intriguing, interesting story. And it's really interesting to read alongside some other Etheridge stuff as well. Um, and I think it's, it's the, for some reason, when I think about this collection, it's the story that keeps coming back to me. Um, and I keep, I keep thinking of it as kind of the, this, this little jewel in the, in the collection that sparkles most for me. And, uh, it's, it's an intriguing one. And I I fully expect that it'll turn some people off too, because what the hell is this thing? Um, but, uh, but, uh, it's definitely the one that I find most enjoyable and intriguing and fascinating. So was that story never published in any form before? Not that I'm aware of. And there were two versions of it in manuscript. So here, there was a, um, you know, sort of fairly scrappy copy and then a, a sort of a, a fair copy typed up. Um, but I, I mean, and I have to confess that with the dating, I'm not even sure that we've got that right because there's nothing to go on um, other than the type of paper that it's written on and the sense that there is this nuclear holocaust somewhere in the background, which which seems to date it. Uh, well, we put, I think, circa 1950s, but it, that is a, a real guess. And I, I suppose there's more scholarship and more research to be done to really to pin that down. Well, it sounds like that might happen now that this book is coming out. to the four of you for this chat and for putting this book out into the world. Um, it really is such a rich and eye-opening book that I know has introduced me to all kinds of fascinating writers and I know it's going to do that to many many more people uh, when it's released properly later this year. Uh, It's available to pre-order now from Parthian's website uh, which is parthianbooks.com and will be out in all your favourite independent Welsh bookshops in the autumn. Diolchen fawr iawn. Diolchen fawr. Parthian Podcast was produced by Catherine Tan for Parthian Books with the support of the Rhys Davis Trust. Thank you for listening and keep an eye out for our next episode on queer Welsh writing.